Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, rebuilding economic theory the old way. It's great that some economists are looking at models and theories that they've relied on for decades and starting to question their merit. But are they talking a fundamental rethink, or are they just tweaking the edges? Uh, you, you might be encouraged to know that the Oxford Review of Economic Policy, in its latest journal, has devoted the entire edition Uh, to rebuilding macroeconomic theory. Now, this is an acknowledgement, perhaps, that the models that have guided economists and central banks for decades might be flawed and in need of review. So, Steve, I'm looking at at, at, at this, and I'm looking at a piece by uh, Olivier Blanchard, for example, questioning the value of DSGE models and the need for models that are based on more empirical evidence. This this is great news, isn't it? This is a step in the right direction, surely. Well... Um, it's a step in the right direction if you're doing line dancing, <laughs> because what they've all what the, the, the whole and it's, this is one of the the reasons why I'm very, actually very glad to be involved with the National Institute for Economic and Social Research (NISR) rebuilding macroeconomic theory program. But that's quite independent of the, what the Oxford Review of Economic Policy has put out. And as the NISR said, uh, it's. It's, it's got its, a, a much broader picture of what might be necessary to reform economic theory than what the Oxford Review has done. Because first of all, you look at the list of people in the Oxford Review, there's no one there with any uh, street cred in terms of being a non-mainstream thinker. The only people who are at all non-mainstream, and this is important, are two members of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane and, and a researcher with him. They're the only ones who have had any track record whatsoever of thinking beyond the models that economists currently use, which are called these DSGE models, presume, first of all, they presume the economy is, in, is, is, is either in equilibrium or not very far from it and will tend back to it after any shock coming from outside the economy. That's the first assumption yeah, yeah. of the DSGE model. Uh, and in fact, in that, I mean, in that Olivier Blanchard, I did read quite a few of these, although I, I paid less attention after the first one. But yeah. the, the, the Olivier Blanchard, yes, his starting point was that everyone is in agreement that macroeconomics is about general equilibrium. Which is, yeah, in fact, so, of all things, that was after a debate that included me. And right. I was actually one of the people he cited as being part of the discussion. I said, here, here are three points we can all agree upon. Let's not discuss them further and move on. One, macroeconomics is about general equilibrium. And my reaction was, no, it's effing not. Mm. It's about general, but it's general non-equilibrium. Equilibrium is a particular state of the economy in an entire range of different states that it can can be in now what what they and this is where they've got themselves locked into a a, a mindset which is based on a sensible idea but converted into a fallacy let's just they, uh, just for, for people like me who don't necessarily understand the, the the core of this argument i mean the idea of 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 equilibrium is that uh, you know we buy and sell and there's a stability in that in the long run the economy is going to balance itself out the economy is not going to run out of control uh that's basically what's meant by equilibrium but um, but if the if the economy is self-correcting why do we need central banks for example 
Yeah, indeed. But what 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 they're starting from is the original economic theory had supply and demand. You know, you have an isolated market. You consider demand in that market and supply in that market and price causing equilibrium between the two. You don't consider what happens if that, if, uh, if that market has supply greater than demand. How does that affect other markets? And that's mm. you went from what they call partial equilibrium analysis to a general equilibrium analysis. But in fact, the, the real world um, is is not and never will be in equilibrium. And in fact, there's a wonderful Hungarian economist called Janos Kornai, who had a, a book he called Anti-Equilibrium, published back in the 1970s. And his argument was that equilibrium is an incredibly boring state for a capitalist economy. Uh, you actually want uh, pressure, and he called it demand pressure. You want a demand pressure greater than uh, uh, pressure on trying to, to get demand greater than uh, pressure on coming from the supply side to mean that you had firms being forced to innovate to get the uh, public's demand and that innovation causing change over time and evolution of the system to having more complex products, more interesting technology. That's what you want. That's the dynamism you want in a, in a capitalist economy. And in that situation, you will not have equilibrium. And equilibrium, you see, you compared equilibrium to like a marriage between a, 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 a sterile man and a frigid woman. Okay. They'll, they'll be in equilibrium for their entire relationship and never have sex. Um, so I, you, I, I love that analogy. All right. So, look, uh, so that's a bad starting point then, and uh, because that is one thing that everybody in the, in the in the Oxford Review of Economic Policy is 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 in agreement with. DSGE models, I mean, some are saying, yes, they're flawed, uh, in some way, there's some who, not all, think it should be done away with. Um, but there's, it doesn't seem like there's anyone who's actually saying, look, it's so flawed, we actually need to start again, which I'm sure is your view. That's my view. And it's, and it's, 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 a, it's also saying let's actually at the moment admit nobody's got it right and therefore take a, a, you know, a very wide range of potential models into account. So the DSGE models, I mean, they're incredibly complicated and and, and they, they had a complicated derivation with a simple outcome. Um, and the reason – I don't want to track you through the mathematics of trying to build one of these things, but it's incredibly laborious to get to the final stage. We end up with a, with a model which presumes the economy is fundamentally stable and, and, and linear. So any shock, you know, if a shock is 10 times as big, it'll cause 10 times as much in a movement, not in the real world where you think a shock is 10 times as big. Uh, one will, one will uh, you know, might hurt your toe a bit and the other kills you. Um, the non-linearity of the real world is effectively left out of all these models. So, and they presume the economy is stable and will always return to equilibrium after a shock. And their explanation for the why they didn't see the financial crisis coming is they thought the financial sector worked perfectly smoothly and therefore no shocks could come from the financial sector to begin with. Mm. And then secondly, because it works perfectly smoothly, it won't slow down how fast the economy returns to equilibrium. Well, that, now, is, that is the yeah. other point, isn't it? Most of these economists are saying, yeah, the financial sector is not a, a contributing part of the economy, which I know you, you, you think is bunkum. But not, yeah. ev not everyone. So Joseph, Stiglitz is in there. He says we should do away with the DSG model. He says it's it's not fit for purpose. His analogy is, he says, it's like going to the doctor uh, and saying you're feeling ill. And he says, I only deal with colds. I thought, uh, you know, maybe that's quite a good one. But he also points to the role of the financial sector. He says it's generally ignored. Uh, and, you know, so he thinks it is a contributing part of, uh, of the way the economy functions. And it, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Because you can't look at the 2008 financial crisis which is all brought about by the financial sector and their, and their approach to risky borrowing practices. And this, this, this is one of the things I, I have a hard time getting through the non-economists. They don't, simply don't believe me that the models the economists built before the financial crisis do not have money in them or mm. banks or debt. 
So do they, yet, so do, have they learned? They must have learned from this, surely. Now, all they've learned is how they, they said we have to include the financial sector, but we're including it within the paradigm with which we currently think. And their paradigm is a stable system subject to shocks where uh, non imperfect imperfections, as they call them, can slow down how fast you return to equilibrium after a shock. And now they think, well, the financial sector, rather than being perfect, actually has imperfections. So therefore, we have to say it's another source of frictions to slow down how fast the economy returns to equilibrium after a shock. Now, I don't see the financial sector as a friction. I see it as a bloody lubricant. Mm. And and this is the, they, they can't take the point that it actually accelerates rather than accelerates deviations from equilibrium rather than slowing down returns to them. And the point that I made in my uh, piece for Russia today is that there are at least three other approaches that weren't even given any consideration here. One is the complex system approach that I take, where you build your bottle of the macroeconomy from the macroeconomy itself and you presume it's out of equilibrium. Well, when you set it up, you don't impose equilibrium on it. And using those models back in 1992, I was saying, well, there's a potential for a debt crisis in a capitalist economy. You can use what are called stock flow consistent models, pretty bad name, but what, what these are models where originally designed by an English economist called Wynne Godley and, and Francis Cripps uh, when they're actually working in the British Treasury. And they said, let's look at the financial flows between def- different sectors in the economy. Yeah. And a, a deficit one is necessarily a, a surplus for, for another. And look so at this those is, flows and so, see if they're sustainable. Right. So that's, be- that's between the financial sector, the, the, the private sector, the, uh, and the, the foreign financial sector. Yeah. And what, and what Wynne Godley did using that back as long ago as 1999 is say the trends in private sector debt are unsustainable because the, the, the American economy is running a deficit, a, a, a trade deficit. So American dollars are going overseas that way. So money is falling. Because the government's trying to run a surplus, which is also taking money out of the economy. So money is falling there. It's been compensated by the private sector borrowing more than the 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 buying the having an effective um, you know, the, the, the negative for the private sector is the same as the positive for the other two. Uh, but also it's borrowing so much money it's causing a housing bubble. Uh, the level of indebtedness of the private sector can't be sustained. At some point, they'll go in the opposite direction. We'll then have three forces driving the economy account and, G- and GDP will fall. We'll have a crisis. Now, Wynne was saying that back in 1999. So that, yeah. that, that form of thinking is not even considered by the Oxford Economic Policy Papers. That's two forms, complex systems and the monetary stock flow consistent analysis. Another form they haven't considered at all, what's called machine learning. Now, we all hear about AI, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of my PhD students some time ago uh, back in Australia built a neural network model of the Fijian economy. It's actually a research project he had. And his model simply said, let's take all this data as inputs, whack it through the black box, got a neural network, see what the predictions come out the other side and train it on the data and see how accurate it gets. His simple neural network model was more accurate than the Central Bank of Fiji's model of Fiji. Um, so you could be doing artificial intelligence approaches, which are completely model, in that sense, they're model free. You don't know what uh, the actual model that the neural network builds up is, but it accurately tells you what's likely to happen in the future based on brain trained accurately on different segments of data from the past. Now, these are all techniques that economists should be considering now, but these buggers simply said, let's twiddle with our current framework, and they came down to this. This is, a, this is from the um, introduction to that paper. We think that four key points were made by our contributors. The need for financial frictions in the model. Bang, frictions, the same 
uh, paradigm. A need to relax the rational expectations assumption. Now, that means a need to relax the assumption people can predict the future accurately. Well, that's a good idea. Uh, introduce an introduction of heterogeneous agents. Let's not pretend everybody's the same anymore. Let's pretend there's slight differences without taking into account class class differences. They don't talk about worker versus capitalist versus banker as I do. And uh, have the model of more appropriate micro foundations, meaning they think they've got to do everything by building for the bottom up, which is the same as thing as saying biologists should first work out how light uh, should actually work as chemists first of all, as chemists create life, and then they can do biology. It doesn't work that way. Mm. And yet, so when they start, so they start. I mean, they are talking about more complex models. I mean, the last article in the journal is all about that. But of course, they you know starting. Well, but from- they, they're, they're making the mistake. They're mistaking complicated for complex. Yeah. And this is a mistake which physicists themselves broke away from 50 or 60 years ago because it used to be believed you had a complicated time series, a very, very aperiodic time series, cycles of different scale, of different frequencies. So it wasn't like a sine wave or a a cosine wave. We all know how regular they are. Um, this ir- irregularity had to be explained by an extremely complicated model. Then a, a, a meteorologist called Lorenz, who was a mathemat- mathematician as well, realized that we were modeling the weather system as though it was linear. I mean, you said there's incredible, uh, what that means is different elements of the weather don't interact. Well, that's garbage. He said there are in different sectors, you know, the, the precipitation levels, the humidity levels, the temperature all interact. So you get nonlinearity coming out of that. That's what we have to have in our meteorological models. And so he took this incredibly complicated equation that described fluid dynamics called the Navier-Stokes equation or a particular branch of the Navier-Stokes equation and simplified this. I think it's an 11-dimensional partial differential equation model down to a three-dimensional uh, ordinary differential equation with three variables and three constants. You couldn't get a simpler looking model than he got. And it produced these aperiodic cycles. Right. And they realized, though, complicated behavior can come out of simple models once you take into account that one variable interacts with another. But you've got to arrive now, at, you've got a lot of work to arrive at, though. Like anything, to make it simple is hard work. That's actually bloody easy in the economics. This is what irritates me because I've realized the model that I built back in 1992 can be derived simply by taking three definitions, which are the wages share of GDP, which gives you income distribution, the employment rate, which gives you effectively economic level of economic activity, and the debt to GDP ratio, which tells you how levered your economy is differentiate them with respect to time, put in the simplest possible relationships between those variables in terms of how workers' wage rises react to the employment rate and how capitalists' investment react to the rate of profit, and bang, you get a model which displays in a stylized way all the characteristics we've seen for the last 30 years. So are they, getting, increase, so no. are they getting a bit close to that? David Vines and Samuel Wills, they've got a, 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 one of their papers. I mean, they were talking about behavioural economics more than, more than anything, but they talk, they talk about agent-based computational economics so that you know we behave differently according to circumstances so we behave differently uh, in the future if if inflation rises for example yeah. so that, that's sort of heading towards your direction isn't it the, the agent based thing is is good and that's the same thing with andy haldane talking about that in his paper as well um the trouble is about agent based modeling and i've got a you know two phd students building agent based models right now so i've got a bit of experience to talk on is that the, it is so 
we, we don't actually have data at that microeconomic level. We have data at the macroeconomic level. Now, what you're trying to do when you build a multi-agent model is say, what types of behaviours between agents at this micro level is going to give us the macro data we see as an emergent property of the system? And it is so complicated writing the code to do that, that people might start with very grand ambitions, as one of my PhD students did, or actually both of them, about modelling Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. In the end, they've both said, I'm going to model the emergence of trade. They, it was just so complicated understanding the behaviour of this model and why it behaved that way with different parameter settings and, and so on, that it, it's, it, it is just too time and brain power intensive to be able to get a, a decent set of results out in the short term. I mean, by, by the short term, I mean over the next, over, over a five-year period. So I'd rather see the complex system stuff. I'd rather see the uh, machine learning stuff. And of certainly this, the, 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 the easiest fruit to pick is stock flow consistent modeling because that is, is when God did. He's already, he already used that to predict the financial crisis uh, eight years before it occurred. So, so that, so, so that the you know the idea of some sort of balance between sectors, the complex modelling, and then sort of like the the, the money creation, the, the modern monetarism sort of sort of approach. That they're, they're the three areas that you think are, are just missing. Should have been papers on each of those. Yeah, and also the um, machine learnings. Like it, it wouldn't take me long, and I'm not joking. It wouldn't take me long to write a neural network to, uh, to try to predict the uh, the future of the Australian economy, for example. In fact, now that I've got my Patreon backing working so well, I might sit down and throw myself into neural network programming again, which I've done once before, and build a model based on a neural network to do my bit for the sitting morning Herald's annual or biannual survey of economic forecasting. And I wouldn't mind betting it'll work out better than any of the, the formal models. So this stuff, it's low, it's low-hanging fruit. The technology that's been built up in the computing sector about artificial, not artificial intelligence, machine learning, is so sophisticated now. We can borrow that stuff. And so let's just build up a neural network model and see what comes out of it. Or, or a genetic algorithm model, genetic programming model. There's all sorts of versions out there. And these guys don't even know they exist. And this mm. is why I made the analogy between them and a bunch of country and Western fans in the article, because they're, they're like people who know that mu- music consists of Hank Partner, Hank, what's his name, Hank, not Hank Paulson, Hank Williams at one extreme and Dolly Parton at the other. That's the complete spectrum of music they know. And that's what it's like. They, they have an embarrassingly limited knowledge of the range of tools that are available to modelers these days. Right, because that was going to be my final question. You know, because some economists, maybe some of the economists who be published here, are saying, oh, you know, that, that Steve Keeney's just upset because the Oxford Review didn't publish his stuff. I mean, did you, did you, did you try actually on that? I wasn't invited. No. Obviously, I'm not. I'm not high enough prominence in. I mean, I'm only the you know, went for, called the, the latest city AM theory, so I'm only the third most prominent economist in the UK. Clearly, they haven't heard of me. Um, so there are people they could have invited that they didn't. Mm. This this I only saw this thing turning up when they were so enthusiastic about it by putting out a tweet. Somebody else copied to me, and bang, here's this thing of the rethinking economic macroeconomic theory, which has no input from other non-orthodox thinkers. And mm. that's where I'm going to put a plug in for the NIESR and um, Angus Angus's group at the NIESR have, have done a marvelous job in including a right, wide range of people from different fields, including having a psychologist, a non-orthodox psychologist at that, and uh, a top class. Um, non-linear, uh, non-linear modeler on their advisory committee. So the NISR, which is 
trying to do the same thing as the Oxford Review claimed to be doing, actually knows that there's blues music and rock music as well as country and western. And uh, there's far more potential for rebuilding academic theory out of what the NISR is doing than this Oxford Review of Economic Policy paper. And in fact, the Oxford Review makes my point that you can't leave economics to the academic economists. Mm, yeah, because they'll just tweak the edges. Because uh, yeah, it's- they'll tweak the edges. Yeah, they might add. They might add a, a, a uh, you know, they'll they'll, they'll whack in a um, a violin as well as a steel guitar. That's as far as they'll go. All right. Well, look, all you need to do then is keep on with all of these surveys, like the SMH uh, survey of, of, of economists, and there's lots of them around the world. Just keep on blitzing them. Keep on giving the right answers, and uh, then you'll have a point. I might need a model to get that done as it happens. <laughs> yes, I'll, I might make that one of my tasks for 2019. Right. Very good. All right. See you soon. Okay, mate. Bye. And next time, back to a subject which I know is very near to Steve's heart, house prices. We've heard time and time again that uh, they're being elevated by the propensity for banks to give extremely big loans. But what about the flip side of the argument, the one that politicians use, uh, the supply side argument? Just how much is a lack of supply pushing up house prices? We'll look at that next time with Professor Steve Keen on the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 